Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint. With me today, Jay Harvey. How are you, Jay? Thanks for having me back. I'm just excited to be here, Jim. <laughs> you know, every time you're here, Jay, I think, should that guy come back? No, no, oh, no. Yeah, I know that. I, I know am that. always glad to see you because you are such <laughs> excellent company. Thank and you. we're not just here, the two of us. No. Uh, in the studio today, we're so glad to have with us back again, Derek Grant. Welcome, Derek. So glad to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. If anyone could take a snapshot mm-hmm. of this room right now, and uh, because this is uh, an audio medium only, you can't see us. So I want you to know that I look exactly like Ryan Gosling. Well, no, no, not really. (laughs) Truth is, if you took a snapshot of this room, you'd see this really old man like me. Then you'd see the really vibrant young middle-aged white guy. Yeah, me, George Clooney. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, I mean. (laughs) And then you'd see Derek Grant, who is this peak athlete, young African-American guy who is what we want to be. Mm-hmm. Derek, mm-hmm. thanks for coming alongside and hanging out with old guys like us. No, That's thank right. you. Thank you for having me. Even though I say old. Jay, Jay, I'm your father. Listen, I know. I am your I, father. I, I'm young at heart, but yeah. yes, it's, no, no. it's getting, you know, undeniable now. Well, yeah. no matter what our age, right. no matter what our color, no matter what our gender, mm-hmm. no matter where we live, We know that we live in an age that's a pivot of history. There is something about what's happened to us in the last few months, be it the pandemic, the unemployment crisis, uh, and the uprisings on the streets and all of the outfalls from the death of George Floyd and all that represented, and Ahmed Arbery before that, and, and that long, sad story of race and prejudice and difficulties in our country. All of it's converged, and today, on Viewpoint, we're so glad that Derek's here because, Derek, you've agreed to have this kind of crucial but difficult conversation with us ongoing about race and relationships uh, in the world in which we live. So, Derek, thanks for diving in. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. Derek's been in 70 countries, and that's because... He played for the Harlem Globetrotters for eight years. I mean, this guy has roots all over the country with his family, but has settled into the heart of the country. You've seen a lot, Derek. You've grown up as a black man in this country. You're married. You have two little kids. You're a professional trainer with some elite athletes and some wannabes. I don't mean that in a diminishing way, but... I why, think you, why did you look at me when you said <laughs> I think you've got... You're, you're working with some young people who have ambition, but they're not quite there yet, even as you... I know you've dealt with some of the brightest uh, players in the college circuits and stuff that have careers waiting for them in the pro ball leagues. I mean, all of this, Derek, I look at you and I think, man, this guy has got it together. You have lived the dream. Mm. But wait a minute. It's not always that easy because growing up black in America, living the dream requires maybe a different set of eyes and uh, consciousness than people like me who kind of grew up without worrying about some things you've had to worry about. Tell me about that. Yeah, a little context. My parents grew up in South Carolina during the civil rights movement. So they were, I mean, you know, say they were in the belly of the beast for African-Americans and and the injustice that, that occurred. And they instilled in me and my brother they made sure that we were aware that we were African-Americans living in America. And you, while it's okay, you have white friends and you'll have people who don't look like you in your circles know that you will be treated differently. As long as you're aware of that, now you can navigate through life. And my mom and I were just talking the other day and my brother was in college and he came back home from college. We were living in Louisiana at the time. And he went out with a bunch of his friends and a majority of his friends were white. 
Well, he ends up going to a bar, and he's the only African-American at that bar. And before he knew it, he's getting beat up by a bunch of guys, getting beer bottles hit over his head. And he was hurt, obviously physically, but emotionally he was hurt. And it wasn't because he was getting beat up. It's because these people who he thought were his friends left him. They did not stand up. And- they did not stand up. It, and and now that I'm older, I look at I try to look at it from an adult perspective, from the psychological standpoint. And this is what's happening with our country. When things like this happen, you are forced to choose. Okay, do I go with what's wrong, and maybe what's wrong is actually people who look like me, or do I go with what's right and get beat up too? And get beat up too. And this is why, like, these conversations are so important. And while, yes, they are uncomfortable, but the only way you'll ever make progress in life is by being uncomfortable. I tell my athletes all the time, like, think about when you lift weights. The only way you build muscle and you make gains and to make progress is to have soreness. That's uncomfortable. But you have to do that in order to get to where you're going. So as a country, these conversations, open dialogue between African-American, white, other minorities, sitting down and saying, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to make this right? Derek, I know your wife, Carly. I know that she is Caucasian, white, and you're African-American. And for those who say, well, we're way past that. We're, you know, this is accepted. You know, there's no problem. What, What would you say to somebody like that? Do you have an experience recently? I do. And and I'm going to show you the difference of how it used to look. So my uncle, my mom's brother, was in the military. Well, he found, they've been married for 40 plus years, but he he met his wife when he was stationed in Germany. She's a young German woman. Well, he brought her back to South Carolina to meet his parents, to meet the family. (laughs) And my mom told me that her dad freaked out. Mm. And he didn't have a problem with her he was scared that the KKK was going to find out that his son was dating a white woman and would mm. come and kill him. Mm. So that's what it looked like back in the 60s. Now, fast forward here to, this was 2017, 2018. This okay. was just recently. Me and my yep. wife were celebrating our anniversary. We go out to um, dinner at a restaurant, and, we're, and I'm sitting there, and because of how I've been raised as an African-American to be aware of how you're perceived, anytime I walk into a crowded area, or where there's other people, I instantly survey the landscape, right? This is things that, quite frankly, my wife, my father-in-law, they don't, they don't think about. So we're sitting there, we, get, we sit down, and there's two older white guys, probably in their 60s, sitting maybe oh, four really feet away old. from us. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but I can, I can hear their conversation, and they think that I can't hear. And my wife is sitting directly across from me. She's not even paying attention. Right. And I'm hearing these two guys, and I hear their conversation. And one of them says, yeah, those are the ones that I, I can't stand, those ones. I would rather date one that smokes than to date one that dates guys like that. Now, I can read between the lines, and I know exactly what he was saying. He was saying he would rather date a woman who smokes than to date one who has dated an African-American. Right. That thought- and that that was somehow mm. soiling her right, in a way that right. she's off the list. And this is, like, this is how it looks. Did he say this to my face? No. Did he make a gesture towards me? No. He did it 
and was comfortable enough to do it, though, in the vicinity of me. Right. And he thought I, maybe he did, maybe he wanted me to hear it. I don't know. He didn't look like he knew that I heard him. And I told my wife after, and she was like devastated. Mm-hmm. She's like, why is this, none of this bothers you? Why is it? Because she always like, mm-hmm. why is it? My, my, my mother-in-law will start crying when I tell her stories. Right. And I'm just like, right. like this is, this is life, life for me. Yeah, yeah, this is like, I'm sorry it's traumatic for you, but this is the way I live. This is life. What you've just described, Eric, uh, at a restaurant, actually your wedding anniversary, I think, a dinner, yeah. uh, where people around you are critiquing the fact that your wife, who is a beautiful woman and she is white, would be seen with you at a table for dinner. I mean, it's just appalling because it speaks so of the racial divide of our time still. Sure. And we all understand that there are many, many layers to these issues. What can we do about it? I mean, do you have any ideas? I think you understand, Derek, that there are a lot of people in my shoes that think, man, something's the matter here, but I'm not smart enough to figure it out, and I have not had to live. I've never had to look around a restaurant or be aware in the way you just described and and be conscious of what people might be saying. I just don't even think about that. But I also understand there's probably something I can do or I should be doing, but what? What? What would you say to the world? Number one, having uncomfortable conversations because you genuinely want to know what you can do. Because a lot of people what I'm finding is they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And think about it like this. If, if I have children and then my children have children and then they have children and for generations I tell them one plus one equals three, by the time it gets to the fifth generation, they will think really that one yeah. plus one equals three. And this is what's happening is there's a generation coming up now that they're only doing things and they only have views because of what their parents told them. And it gets passed on, it gets passed. So my point is taking time to have these conversations. This is why I'm willing to be a resource. I hear you saying, Derek, ask questions. My guess is there are some African-Americans who don't want to be questioned. They don't have the energy to again explain why uh, they feel like they have had the short end of the stick or whatever. But we insofar as we're able to identify or come into the company of people like Derek Grant, we need to be willing to have a conversation in which we listen. But Derek also wants to hear my side too, probably. You know, this is what happened to me. Or Sure. Everybody has a story to tell. We have to have hard conversations, be willing to hear each other. But I need to especially be tuned up to hear what your life has been like because it's not something I could have imagined on my own. All right, but what else? Another idea, what can... We do to make things better. And I'm going to piggyback to what you said. Coming and listening and not suggesting on how you think it needs to be. Hmm. Right? Not telling you not how to Not telling fix it. me like, well, maybe we... No, like sometimes my mom always says that you have two ears and one mouth. Mm-hmm. You need to listen twice as much as you talk. So coming to the table with humility and saying, I know I don't understand, but tell me, like, give me your perspective of how you think I need to, what do you think I need to do? And just being quiet. And that's really, really uncomfortable. That's really, really uncomfortable for a lot of people of relinquishing ultimately control. And that's, I think that's what needs to be done, but probably the most important thing, and it's just, and I'm gonna break this down. It's gonna sound really simple. It's actually easy to do, but it's actually easier not to do, is you have to have Jesus in your life front and center, period. Think about it like this. If I lived the way 
Jesus, like truly, truly lived my life the way Jesus wanted me to and treated people the way Jesus would want me to. And I took that serious. I took it as serious as my next meal I'm going to eat and planning that out. If I did that and you did that and you did that and he did that, what would this world look like if everybody did it? And I'm not trying to downplay the situation, but to me, it's really quite simple. It's really quite simple. If every person lived their life as if Jesus was sitting right over their shoulder, because he is, and said, hey, that's, you know, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't think that. You shouldn't talk to them that way. You should not react in this. I know, I know, I know, but that's not how we react. And I go to scripture, I think about 1 John um, 4.18, and it says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Let us love with actions and in truth. What does that mean to you? It means regardless, my truth is is not based on things of this world. My standard is not based on things of this world. I have conversations with young African-Americans who are angry. They are hurt. Um, with what happened and what's going on in our society. And they question and wonder why, like, how can you sit here and preach love and, and, and we need to come together? How can you sit here and say this, say this when you're not viewed as a Christian, you're viewed as a black man? And I tell them because I truly adhere to being not of this world. My standards, my baseline is not things of this world. I will never, never be enough in this world. Never. The only way I'm enough is if I, if I adhere to my Heavenly Father, period. And having that understanding, my mom always tells me, know who you are, but more importantly, know whose you are. When you, and I think about Martin Luther King. Look at Martin Luther King Jr., what he did. I didn't know, Jim, until we went to Alabama, that he really started his ministry at 25, and he died at 39. I'm 37. I'm like, uh, he did all of this in 14 years? <laughs> who was at the front and center? Jesus. I was telling somebody today, I said, you think about all of the hymnals that were developed that, you know, African-American churches sing, how many of them were developed in plantation fields? Mm -hmm. God was at the center, even during slavery, all the way up through Martin Luther King. And then slowly, just subtly, because this is what the devil does. He comes in, he, he, he wedges in very, very subtly. We've gotten away. Even the African-American culture has gotten away from keeping Jesus first. And it's, it's hard. I mean, the prince of the world is real and alive, and, 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 and submitting to your flesh is easier than submitting to God sometimes. Derek, what would you say to someone listening today who said, how do I submit to Jesus? What does that mean? What would you tell them? I can, I can say how I personally did it. It was, um, it was curiosity. I got tired of feeling the way I feel. You know, you know, you hear everybody, my parents say, oh, you, better, you, know, you know Jesus, you better, and you hear. And then finally I got to a point where like this feeling that I'm feeling, I'm tired of feeling this way. I'm tired of feeling hopeless. I'm tired of feeling like a man like me in this world stands no chance. And then the Holy Spirit would always say, Jesus, Jesus. And it negates anything. It overcomes. It, oh, yes. Anything that's going on, it was like, okay. There's still a solution. So I encourage, and I tell young people that I mentor and help, I say, go into your Bible. Well, I don't understand the Bible. Okay, how about this? This is what I did. I bought a teen Bible. So I could, it could be written in a way that I understand. 
go on Google. It's as simple as going on Google and saying scripture about feeling hopeless. And you will get scripture. And then here's what I do. And then I get it and I say, okay, well, let me go to the Bible now and, and read maybe a couple pages before that and a couple pages after to give context as to why that was said. And then it's it's slowly feeding a seed that's inside. Because God planted a seed in all of us, right? And you're watering it. You are watering it. And then this is at the and ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus only wants our hearts. You're forming a relationship with him that's personal. So what I'm hearing you say is he's always been there. He's, he's always, always there, there. And he's and he's continually asking, it, is it time to surrender to me? I told my mom, I said, <laughs> jokingly, I tell her, I said, I can imagine Jesus sitting in heaven, hmm. sitting back in a rocking chair with a toothpick in his mouth. <laughs> just wait and say, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting what are you, for you. Here I am. When are you yeah. going to come? I'm waiting. That's great. You can't submit to someone you won't listen to. Yeah. And that's what you find in the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to know more about how you can be that Jesus man, that Jesus woman, how you can be that person who represents the most compelling life that's ever lived and has the greatest capacity to make this world, your world better. If you want to know more about how you can be in that Jesus place, well, give us a call. Just dial this number, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. 24 hours a day and seven days a week, we're by the phone. We'd like to speak to you about Jesus or anything else that you have on your heart and mind. Give us a call. But Jay, I know some people may not be ready to just talk on the phone yet. How could they find us online? Uh, They can easily find us, Jim, on www.cbhviewpoint.org. CBH Christians Broadcasting Hope. That's exactly who we are cbhviewpoint.org. Send us an email. We will reply. Maybe you're even accessing this conversation online right now through social media. If you're on Facebook, just send us a message through the Facebook feed. We're watching it, and we'll be glad to respond. Or at the last, just use the post office. Get out a piece of paper and an envelope and a stamp. Put this on the envelope. Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you call us up, check us out online, use social media, or the post, please let us hear from you this week. Derek, I can't thank you enough for being so uh, honest and authentic and sharing with us some of your story today in these very tumultuous times. I'm better for it. Thanks for joining us. Me too. Thanks. Jay, so glad to be in the room with you Mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. You make me better too. Well, you do too. Because I realize... Uh, how far you've come. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, Jay, so That's glad to have story. you alongside. Uh, and we thank anytime. you for joining us too on this edition of Viewpoint. We hope that you'll join us again next week. But until then, for all of us at the Viewpoint Ministry team, for all of us at Church of God Ministries, this is Jim Lyon. Stay tuned.